I read a book this uh, this week that I'm a day off uh, by a fellow named J.D. Vance. Uh, it was called Hillbilly Elegy. And in the book, he described growing up uh, in South Ohio. We arranged a flyover for the moment, so he appreciated that. He, uh, he, he described up in southern Ohio, the, the grandchild of people from, ja from Breathitt County, uh, Kentucky. And uh, he had a difficult childhood because his mother struggled with, his dad left and his mother struggled with drug abuse and there were some other struggles in his family. But he did well in life. His one, he would say, the, the, probably the biggest influence in his life for good was, was his grandmother. His grandmother over and over demanded that he go to school and get a good education. And so uh, J.D. Vance eventually graduated from his state university. And then he applied to Yale Law School, was accepted, graduated from Yale Law School. Wrote a book about his experience. His grandmother taught him the importance of education. Now, what's the main thing that you would want to teach your grandchild? I remember when I was a boy, my dad took me to the big, the big Meyer Thrifty Acres on 28th Street in Grand Rapids. The original superstore there on 28th Street. And he took me, it was on a spring day, and he took me back to the sporting goods, and he, he looked around until he found a genuine leather baseball glove for the astronomical sum of $5.95. It wasn't a cheap ball glove. As a matter of fact, my dad gave me a lecture on the way home about the quality of this ball glove. He said, son, if you take good care of this ball glove, it could last you the rest of your life. He said, we want to break it in. We're going to put a ball inside. We're going to wrap a rubber band around it. You're going to sleep on this ball glove under your pillow. And then in the, and when he got home from work, he took me out to a little sliver of grass beside our driveway at 1917 Francis Street in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and under the shade of a maple tree in that little sliver of grass, he taught me to throw a baseball and to catch a baseball. He taught me to use my meat hand. He taught me to put a little something on it. Imagine you're seven years old. You, don't, you can't put too much on the ball, but he'd say, put a little something on this one, son. And then I would wind up and throw it as hard as I could, and then he would say, whoa, that's too hot to handle. That is too hot to handle which it probably wasn't if you're seven years old. And uh, sometimes in my enthusiasm, I remember that I would throw the ball and it wouldn't go anywhere near where my dad could catch it. And it would just go bouncing across the street. My dad would very patiently turn and run across the street and he'd jog across the street and get that ball and he'd come back. And if, if he thought I wasn't really being very careful and I threw it wildly, he would say, you're going to shag that one. Kenny. And then I would have to run across the street and come back. I remember my dad wanted me 
to know how to throw a baseball. He wanted me to know how to catch a baseball. He wanted me to know how to break in a ball glove. He wanted me to know how to take care of things. That's not all my dad taught me, but that's one of the things that my dad taught me. What would you want to teach your children or your grandchildren? I had a boy, a uh, young man in uh, a youth group in, over in Niles, Michigan, a young fellow. As a matter of fact, if you look on your notes, I have a picture on the church's website where the notes are. I embedded a picture today of my group of my little youth group that I had there when I was young. And you'll see me there standing with all those young people that sang in that singing group. Just to the right of me is a young lady who's here today. She's a member of our church, Rebecca Jeanette. She was in my youth group, and imagine that. She still goes to my church. Can you imagine? This is grace. This is mercy. Anyway, she's right there on my right hand. But down in the front row, there's another girl. Just inside that girl, there's a young boy there, not very tall, just a, not very tall for his age. His name was Lauren. Rebecca's brother, Lauren. Lauren Elms. I remember that one day we, um, we went out for a church softball game and we were all there getting ready to play and I noticed that Lauren really wasn't skilled at, at baseball. He wasn't skilled at softball. He didn't, really, he didn't really hit well, he didn't really catch well, it just wasn't his thing. He wasn't a big guy, he was kind of slight. And you can just tell baseball was definitely not Lauren's thing. But Lauren had devout, believing parents who loved the Lord and loved him. And I wish you could meet Lauren today. I wish you could meet Lauren. I wish you could meet his wife. I wish you could meet his sons. I wish you could see his life. My goodness, without being good at baseball, he turned out to be quite a young man. He turned out to be quite successful. He taught hundreds of people music. I believe he's, uh, his profession is in human resources and, and uh, payroll and so forth. He's done that for years. He's a faithful, contributing member of a local... They're probably still not a very good baseball player, but he's a great human being. Somebody taught him something important, and his parents were part of that, of course. And that would be true with us. We're in a series, we're concluding a series of messages today on Psalm 78. And Psalm 78 is about the most important thing passed down to the next generations. And today's message I have entitled 38,000 38,000 days of mercy and grace. 38,000 days of mercy and grace. I want to talk to you today to bring this series to a conclusion about what what we most ought to care about passing down to our children and to our grandchildren. And this is what the scriptures say in Psalm 78, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He's established us a testimony or a biography or an inspiring story. He's established a testimony in Jacob. In other words, he's saying, God chose to use the sons of Jacob, the Israelites, if you will, the nation of Israel, 
to establish a story, to establish a biography that shows the goodness of the Lord. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to use our lives to establish a testimony, to have an experience of the reality of the living God in our own lives and our own families, to see his provision, his direction, his protection, his discipline, his mercy, and his grace. He wants us to live the kind of life that's worth telling to the generations to come. And this is what influences generations to come. And so he appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, verse 5 and 6, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn would arise and tell them to their children so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. To set their hope in God, not forget the works of God but keep the commandments of God. Now, if our kids know how to shake hands, that's good. If they know how to go on a job interview, that's good. If they know how to evaluate the faith and the character and the virtue of a guy or a girl who might be a part of their life, that's good. If they have qualities of character that will help them to make a living, that's good. If they know how to throw a baseball, that's good. If they know flag etiquette, that's good. If they're patriots, that's good. If they understand how to make a living, that's good. If they can work on cars, that's good. If they can plumb, that's real good. If they can do electric, that's good. But the most important thing that we must pass on to our children is that they would set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, keep the commandments of God. This, the Bible says, can be aided in this way. That you and I live self-reflective lives, thinking about our experience with God and recording the goodness of God and recording the protections of God and recording the provisions of God and recording the times that God gave us direction and recording the times that God disciplined us and recording the times that God showed us mercy and showed us grace, that at times he forgave us because of our sin. And this is what we've been teaching over the, in actually the month of June from Psalm 78. We've been showing you in this text and returning to this text over and over again so that you would return to this text over and over again. And so this would be a part of your life so we could pass the faith in a living God, hoping in God, keeping the commandments of God. Uh, the scriptures specifically say, not forgetting the works of God, that these things would be true about our children and about our grandchildren. And there are, in our culture, in our society, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of children who are not going to be raised in homes where people have an experience with the living God. There are tens of thousands and tens of thousands of children in our own state where the children will have to have somebody else besides their parents or the grandparents teach them about the things of God. And that's why we have Sunday schools and Awana. That's why we have Christian camping. And that's why we're always attentive and aware of people that live around us because there are little ones who God will call to himself. Now, so how do we influence that? And obviously we've said this over and over again, and I don't apologize for repeating it, or pointing you back over and over to Psalm 78, because the way, a powerful way, 
to influence others is simply to pay attention to what God has done in our own lives and to tell those stories. And you'll notice this, and you'll see these notes there um, if you look online. You'll notice that, and this is essentially an outline of the things we've already said, that we tell them stories of God's protection. And so Israel, there's an example of the history of Israel here uh, given. And, and when Israel fled their Egyptian enemies and God protected them in the, in the sea, that, he said, because I protected you, you should remember that. Trust me. And then that's in verses 12 and 13. And verse 14, remember the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He said, I gave you direction. And so it is in our lives. If we look back over our lives, and if we're attentive, we pay attention, what we can see is that God protected us. And we have testimonies. We have stories of times that God protected us. And to your grandchild, those stories more interesting. The story you tell about your, you tell about when you were their age, this is what you did. This is how God protected you. How did God protect you? Record that. Tell that story. Get good at telling it over and over again. How did God give you direction in your life? How did you come to the good decisions that you made? And then the provision. How did God provide for you? How has God given you what you need? The, the food, the clothing, the shelter that you have, and sometimes lots more than that. And you certainly may initially not feel like you have exciting stories to tell about that, but there you are sitting in a modern car. Somehow God provided that for you. We, we all have probably eaten pretty well. Somehow God provided clothing and food and shelter. And we, we, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, God has provided what we needed. And so we certainly we have stories to tell of God's rich provision. And then there's this that we talked about last week. And most of Psalm 78 is about stories of God's discipline because God's people continuously disobeyed him. And God's people continuously fail, just like you and I do, and like our children will, and our grandchildren. They are going to have an experience with sin. They're going to have experiences with failure, and they're going to need to know what to do. And we can, with our own lives, tell them stories of God's discipline in our lives. I went fishing one day with a friend from the church years ago, and I was gone all day with the two oldest boys up on a Lake Erie fishing. And when we got home that night, before cell phones and such, the whole family was in a mess. Everybody was, all the girls were crying. Lois was beside herself. They were all teary-eyed. We had a, a little puppy. We hadn't even named this cute little golden retriever puppy. And this puppy had gone out into one of our buildings there, and he'd gotten himself into trouble. He'd gotten himself into the fishing gear and he got a hook embedded in his mouth and the kids Lois couldn't get the hook out of the dog's mouth and nobody could all day long the dog just cried and whimpered and didn't know what to do and I got home and I said well let's just let's just shoot it no I'm just kidding that's not what I did like when I got home I said we'll take care of this and our to our oldest son I said I want you to I got a pair of pliers and I said to our oldest son, I want you to get a hold of this dog, and I want you to hold on. And he's not going to like what we're going to do, but I want you to hold on. Like, we didn't have money to send the kids to the doctor. We weren't going to spend money to send the dog to a veterinarian. And so I just said, Kyle, hold on to that dog. Hold him tight. 
So little Kyle's about a 10-year-old boy, and he gets a hold of his little golden retriever puppy, and he just holds on. And I take the pliers, and I get a grip on the hook. And then on three, I just yank the hook out. And the dog yelps for a second. He jumps down, and he walks over to his water dish, and he drinks water, and he eats food. And the universal sign of the dog's okay, his tail begins to wag. After that, we called that dog Captain Hook. Captain Hook was fine. But I, wa but I wonder what, what went through that poor dog's mind when we were holding him down and we were ripping that hook out of his mouth. What he didn't know is that there was a mind greater than his, somebody that loved him and cared about him, and what happened is something that he would need. And when we have that happen to us, we have, we have to tell the story of God's discipline so that our children will understand that God isn't angry, God isn't arbitrary, God isn't cruel, and yet God will allow difficult things to come into our life. God will use difficult things, painful things, even sinful things, bad things. God, children need to be taught that that's the way God works. And we talked about that last week. But I said all that I said so that I could arrive at what I'm going to say today. Because the most important stories that you ever tell your children and grandchildren will not be the stories of God's goodness or the stories of God's provision or the stories of God's direction, uh, the stories of God's protection, or even the stories of God's discipline. But the most important stories that you will ever tell, the ones they most need to hear, are stories of God's mercy and stories of God's grace. Mercy, when God withheld from you a punishment that you deserved. Grace, when God gave you something, a gift you did not deserve. And all throughout this psalm and all throughout this book, we have story after story of God's mercy and story after story of God's grace and song after song of God's mercy and song after song of God's grace. In the Old Testament, you have the you have really a testimony of God who is absolutely holy and demands absolute holiness of everyone. And that's why often to read the Old Testament, it seems difficult and dark because we're, God is establishing that his absolute holiness and his absolute holy demands of, for absolute holiness from people. And if you read the Old Testament carefully and you see no one ever satisfies the holiness of God but all throughout the Old Testament are beautiful symbols and hints that God's just wrath, God's holiness, can and will be satisfied one day. And then it sets up the story of the New Testament where Christ appears, who satisfies the wrath of God, who satisfies the just wrath of God, and satisfies the, the great absolute holiness of God. Do you understand that? In other words, think about this. Listen carefully to what I'm saying here. Think about this. Our intuition is be good. Try to be good. Try harder to be good. Our intuition is impress God with how good we are. Our intuition is our, our bad wasn't that bad. Our, our good is better than it looked. Our intuition is religious intuition. It's legal. It's legalist intuition. But that's a, that's a fool's errand. That's a lost cause. It's a hopeless, foolish thing to do. Religion itself, bad religion, 
It, it won't ever satisfy the perfect demands of God's holiness. But God sent his son Jesus to satisfy that. And that's hinted at in Psalm 78. When we read Psalm 78 with a full Bible knowledge of the Old and New Testament, Psalm 78 is, is supposed to stir up within us an understanding of what Jesus did. Let's look now in the last verses of Psalm 78. And what we're going to read there is that God is saying to Israel, even though I've had to discipline you, even though I provided for you and you forgot about that, even though I protected you and you still rebelled against me, even though you've been imperfect, I've been perfect, even, even though those things are true, I still am going to choose you and I'm still going to give you a special place and I'm still going to give you leaders that will shepherd you and watch over you. And that's what it says here in Psalm 78 in the last section in verse 67. He rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. In other words, what he's saying is he set aside the northern tribes and he chose the southern tribe of the faithful tribe of Judah. He chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, and brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. In Psalm 78, Asaph, this great worship leader of Israel, is saying this, even though God's people weren't faithful, God was faithful to his people. And his faithfulness was expressed in choosing them his, for a special love. His faithfulness was expressed in giving them a special place that would be their own, Mount Zion or Jerusalem. And his faithfulness was expressed in giving them a shepherd the shepherd, David, who had this skillful care for his people and a heart of integrity toward God, even though David was far from perfect, he had an unbroken heart of sincere integrity toward God and grieved over his own sin and repented and mourned over his own sin and had a heart after God. And David, in the scriptures, it's very clear that David is supposed to remind us of a greater David that's to come. And David the shepherd is to remind us of a greater shepherd, a good shepherd that's to come. And we know this specifically because Psalm 78 is a messianic psalm. A messianic psalm is a psalm that refers to Jesus. And we know a messianic psalm is a messianic psalm because it's quoted in the New Testament as a reference to Jesus, which, which it does in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what's been hidden since the foundation of the world. In other words, Matthew is saying that Jesus spoke in parables to fulfill a prophecy of the Old Testament, and then he quotes this passage in Psalm 78. It's a messianic psalm. And then you know this is true, that, that the Bible promises in many places, like specifically like Isaiah 9, 6, that Jesus will someday sit on the throne of David. He'll fulfill the promises made to Israel and to David. In other words, what I'm getting at is this. When a Christian who has the Old and the New Testament together reads this psalm, it should remind them 
of God's faithfulness through David, but it should remind them of God's faithfulness through Jesus. And listen, here's what I'm telling you that's so important. Your kids and your grandkids need to know Jesus because only Jesus can deal with their biggest problem, sin. And America needs Jesus because only Jesus can deal with all the various forms of their biggest problem, which is sin. Much talk is going on about systemic racism. Much talk is going on about, uh, say, uh, run-amuck capitalism where people are selfish and greedy. And much talk, everybody has a political opinion, but it really all boils down to one thing, and that is we have sinned against God in various forms. And we need to be forgiven. We need to repent and confess our various kinds of sin continuously and flee to Christ who alone can deal with the sin problem, our greatest problem, the world's greatest problem, America's greatest problem, Bethel Church's greatest problem, sin. Yet we have that. So understand this. You've sinned in your past. You're not proud of it. You don't like to think of it. But the only way to deal with your past sin is to confess your sin to Jesus and to receive forgiveness from him. And you should have stories about that or you're still in your sin. And guess what's going to happen? Your kids are cute and they're bright and they're funny and they're witty. But they're sinners and they're good at that. And if they're going to sin, they're going to need to deal with their sin. And you should show them how to deal with their sin. You shouldn't be shocked or surprised or, over, or you shouldn't be overly disappointed when they do what people do. People are sinners. But you should point them to the cross. You should show them God's mercy. And today, you might be thinking, you, you know, all of us really are deciding, will we go our own way or will we follow somebody or something else? And all that God is saying to Israel here is, haven't I been a good shepherd to you? Haven't I provided for you? Haven't I protected you? Haven't I given you direction? Haven't I kindly and lovingly trained and chastised and disciplined you? Haven't I given you mercy? Haven't I given you grace? Aren't I a good shepherd? Shouldn't you follow me? Young person, listen to me. You're going to decide who you're going to follow. Most of us are going to follow Jesus or ourselves or a version of ourselves. Can I suggest to you that you decide now to follow the only one who can really shepherd your soul, the good shepherd Jesus. Give your life to him. Trust him. Don't be willful. Don't be proud. Don't be unrepentant. Don't be arrogant. Don't be selfish. Be humble and, and trust that God and his son, our Savior, Jesus is a good shepherd. Study your Bible. Seek the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you're not saved, be saved. If you're not baptized, be baptized. If you haven't united with the church, unite with the church. You decide that, that Lauren Elms boy, I've watched him all of my life. When he was a little, he was not a very big guy. He was in my youth group there. I, I saw that he had a heart for God. I saw that he had an interest in serving God. I saw that, I, I could see that in his sister too. I could see that they were interested in serving God. They were interested in following God. And it's been interesting to me to, to watch that boy from really when he was just a small, kind of a young teenager, maybe 12, 13, until now he's a man. As an example, when you follow the right shepherd, he leads you into green pastures. You know, when I was a 
when I was a little boy, I, I have this memory of my mother putting us to bed at night and teaching us Psalm 23. So there we are in our pajamas and we're in our bed and, and mom says, Kenny, I want you to repeat after me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He says, repeat it after me. Say it five times. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I said what she told me, but my mind recoiled against the idea, why wouldn't I want a shepherd so wonderful? I asked my mom, why wouldn't I want him? And she smiled. I remember she's down at the foot of my bed. She says, Kenny, that's not what that means. It means if the Lord is your shepherd, you have everything that you need. Let me say that again. Mom said, it means that if the Lord is your shepherd, you have everything that you need. Kenneth Taylor, who paraphrased the living Bible for his large family, that's how he put it. The Lord is my shepherd. He meets all my needs. Now, I was just probably three years old when my mother taught me, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And now I'm in my sixth decade of life. And I can tell you from experience, you want this shepherd. You want this shepherd to lead you. You want this shepherd to protect you. You want this shepherd to provide for you. You want this shepherd to discipline you. You want this shepherd to gift you with mercy and with grace. I was on a, on a pastoral visit on Friday. When I was young, I would go to a hospital or a nursing home, and I would read a large passage of Scripture. I figure they're here for a long time. They don't have that much to do. I'll just read them a long passage of Scripture. And when I got a little bit older, I began to realize they probably, if they're sick or if they're aging, they maybe don't have the patience for such a long passage of Scripture. Maybe what I ought to do is I ought to think of a brief passage that'll be really meaningful to them. And so I began to pray. I'd turn off the radio. I'd get in my car to drive to the hospital or to the nursing home, and I would pray, God, give me a word for the day. Give me a word for the day. And maybe I would arrive there, and I felt like the Spirit. I remember one day I was on my way to the hospital in Dearborn, and there was a guy that was there that had frequently told me he believed in God, but he really couldn't buy into the whole Jesus walked on water thing. But he attended our church, and he listened to my talks, and on the way up to the, to the hospital to see him, he was dying of cancer, it occurred to me, a passage just came to my heart. When I got there, I said, Here's the word for the day. It's from John 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. I said, you told me you believe in God, but if you don't believe in Jesus, you won't have eternal life. That day, he moved from believing in God to placing his faith and trust in Jesus as his Savior. I, I did his funeral a few weeks after that. The other day, I was on this hospital call, and I or this uh, rest home visit to our oldest, our oldest member. Two of our ladies are in that room. Mary was sleeping. Edith was awake. Edith is 104. I did not stutter. She's 104. 
I was visiting her one day, and I, I, had, I had forgotten there was, there was Mary's grandchildren, Lincoln and Reagan, and I had forgotten Reagan's name. I go, there's Lincoln and, there's Lincoln and, and, and Edith says, it's a president's name. I go, right, Reagan. And I thought, my goodness, how terrible is that when you got a person 104 jogging your memory about things? She's 104. And what's really sweet when you visit somebody that loves the Lord like Edith Ryan does and has walked the Lord for so many years is you sing and they sing with you. You sing, I come to the garden alone, they sing with you. They know the words. You sing, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus, they sing all the words with you. You sing victory in Jesus, they sing with you. They have those words memorized. And then when you quote Bible verses and stop, they finish the Bible verses. And so I was with Edith, and I said, Surely goodness and mercy have followed me. And then she said, All the days of my life. And I thought, 104 years is 38,000 days of mercy and grace. God pursued Edith with his mercy and with his grace 38,000 days. How many days has he pursued you? Pursued you? For me, it's over 22,000 days. How many days has he pursued you with his mercy and his grace? I want to appeal to you today that you turn your life over to Jesus over and over and over again and that you never turn aside all the days of your life because surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And today, I want to release you with a benediction. And so now I pray for you. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.